This is Connected to Chicago with Bill Cameron. What's going on in Chicago? What the hell is going on? Covering the big ideas. If you do not feel well, for God's sake, stay home. Save a lot. The tough choices. Guacamole? No, I like guacamole. And the only three ways a Chicago alderman leaves the city council. The ballot box, the jury box, or the pine box. Now, Bill Cameron. Well, this week back in 2010, Dan Rostenkowski died at the age of 82. He was, of course, the powerful Chicago congressman who really knew how to bring home the bacon. He brought it home beginning with the first mayor daily, Richard J. Daly. He went on to become chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, but yes, he went to prison too. It's a good time to hear Danny Rostenkowski again. Danny boy, Danny boy, Danny Rostenkowski, he's our dad, he's our That's little Richard Spokaband celebrating Congressman Danny Rostenkowski years ago. Rusty was from 32nd Ward Machine Precinct Captain all the way up to Chairman of House Ways and Means, bringing home the bacon for both Mayor Daly's. He was a dealmaker, even with Republican presidents Ronald Reagan and George Bush I. But like so many in the old school of Chicago machine politics, Rusty didn't keep up with ethics reforms. And he spent more than a year in the federal prison up at Oxford, Wisconsin, for converting congressional privileges to personal and political use. But when he got out, Rostenkowski joked about it. I graduated from Oxford. Um, <laughs> and I really had a Rhodes scholarship. Uh, I've had an opportunity to blossom out, if you will. Uh, heck, I've been a television star. Uh, I always thought I was a television star, but this time I got paid for it from WFLD, and that's fun. Rusty's close friend, House Speaker Tip O'Neill at the time, always used to say politics is show business for ugly people. That was Rusty McCaskey at the City Club in 1998 after he got out of prison. There he also talked about how dysfunctional Washington was even then. As children, we were taught, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. The revisionist rhetoric seems to be... If success doesn't come quickly and easily, give up and try something else. That's not a good personal philosophy, and it's not a good political philosophy. And here is Rostenkowski on the necessity to make political compromises to get things done. I worked 14 years with Republican presidents, but they wanted to get something done. What's lost here in the debate that's taking place on Capitol Hill is the appetite on the part of the legislative branch to get something done. And as Father Minogue pointed out, compromise is an evil element in bargaining. You do a little today, you do a little more tomorrow, and by the time you've done your job, maybe you've outcompromised the guy that you're working against. <laughs> I always enjoyed, I always enjoyed uh, the element of discussion and deliberation. And I never made a deal where I wasn't sitting in the room looking at all the eye, the eye movement and all the body language that my opponent has. I enjoyed being a public servant. I loved nothing better than serving this city, Cook County, and the state of Illinois. 
and everybody that I worked with, Democrat or Republican, will have to attest that the one goal that Rostenkowski had was getting its share for the citizenry of this state. Also at the City Club, Rostenkowski took questions from the audience, talking about voter apathy and the lazy electorate, too much scrutiny on politicians, how the after-hours conduct in Washington is not really news, and also how money rules... An organization doesn't. You know, we've got motor registering. When we talk about percentages, everybody registers, but nobody votes. Well, uh, when I was a young precinct captain walking the streets and we got people registered, we kind of felt our obligation to get those people after they've registered to coming out and voting. And it was more an embarrassment that you mean to tell me you're not going to vote today on a personal basis. When you talk about low voter turnout, things are good. We're talking about it at the table here. I mean, how independent are we? We live in an apartment building, it's a box. We get in our car, it's a box. We watch television, it's a box. And if we've got these three things, we don't need anybody until a snowstorm comes. <laughs> then all of a sudden, oh my God, we can't get the milk. We've got to go, we got to walk. And you all of a sudden, you're walking with your neighbor. I don't know what you're going to do to the American people to encourage them to vote. But... Uh, we, you know, we've got a lazy electorate. I mean, it, and, and it's sad. It really is sad. Today, uh, if, I were, if I were going to talk to a class, I'd like to inspire them to get in to public service. But I'm also discouraged by the amount of scrutiny that they're exposed to today. Uh, you know, I really don't care if a journalist is doing his job I think he's a good journalist. How many martinis he has that night doesn't make a goddamn bit of difference to me. I feel the same way about a public official. What a public official does after five... As a matter of fact, Tip O'Neill, my good friend, used to make it a point that Bob Michael, Danny Rusty, Tip O'Neill, after five o'clock, we were all hugging each other and having a great time at the corner saloon. The next day, on the floor of the House of Representatives, fighting like cats and dogs. And I just don't think that today... You have the, the personal warmth on the floor of the House of Representatives and or even in the Senate. And I think that, that that trickles down to every state legislature as well. We become, for want of a better word, partisan. And yet we're all independent contractors. I mean, when Dick Daly was the city of, ran the city of Chicago and was mayor of this city, he was interested in a fella getting promoted on his ability, not how much money he had in his pocket. The organizational effort is gone, and we all start soliciting like crazy. And that's why every public official in this room has got a campaign war chest. Then we wind up, as I did, I'd raise money so I could give it to another candidate because I was in a position where I could raise money. Well, anybody who's followed Chicago politics knows that race has been perhaps the dominant factor affecting it. And Rostenkowski talked about that, too. When King was walking in the streets of Chicago... And he walked up Milwaukee Avenue, which was in my congressional district. I was a pretty young man then. And there was uh, the attitude, and it was all real estate attitudes. You know, a black moves in next door, bound, out, out goes the, the real estate values. And I was talking to my constituents, and naturally preceding me is my name. And I said to these people, uh, you know... If you want to Anglo-Saxonize your name, if you want to go from Rostenkowski to Rostin, you're just an American. And we can do that just like that. 
But if you're black, changing names doesn't make you different. I said, you've got to understand that. I'm quite proud of the fact that I have the best civil rights voting record out of Illinois uh, over a 35-year period. And I did that because I felt my, my district would ultimately be educated in understanding that we've got to learn to get along. This country is built on people surviving in neighborhoods by helping each other. And that's, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's not popular in most instances, but we're getting there. Uh, we're, doing, we're doing some grand things, but I'll be honest with you, I, I'd like to see uh, a few more white kids playing basketball. <laughs> With red ink causing so much trouble for so many government budgets these days, I want to play for you what Rasta said back in 98 about paying down the debt. When you pay down the debt on, on the national debt, you're helping everyone. And that is what I, as long as I was in Congress, it was doing something with the national debt. Ladies and gentlemen, they're talking about an excess now of 50, 70 billion dollars. They just passed a highway bill. It costs somewhere in the neighborhood of $30 billion, doesn't it? Or so, I mean, it's, it's, it's fabulous, the, the kind of money that we're talking about with respect to an excess, and they're spending the money already. I, uh, I think that the needs of the country have to be met. I mean, building highways is as much a national security operation as anything else. But the fact of the matter is I think the appetite ought to be work out the problems of Social Security, get the national debt down as quickly as possible. You know... I was only in Congress twice in two sessions when we had a balanced budget. I mean, this is phenomenal. But then again, uh, you have to give credit to, to, to the Greenspans and to the Bob Rubens. These people were geniuses about what we're, what we're doing with our dollars. Plus the fact that, uh, that uh, the economy is surging and, and it's all based on, on the job creation. Uh, you know, when George Bush was running for re-election. I went over to the White House, and I said to, uh, to George, George, this is de Desert Storms, 94% voter approval. I said, George, you've got to do something about your domestic policy. Oh, Danny. I said, George, I'm what do you want me to do, spend money? I said, yeah. You want to be president? You have to spend some money. Oh, Barb, Barb, come in here. He's picking on me again. What you've got to do is figure out what your priorities. But, madam, I would work uh, like a beaver to do something about the debt. One of the big political stories Rostenkowski lived through was the 1960 election of President John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Now, critics said, of course, that the Daily Machine stole the election from Richard Nixon by delivering Illinois to JFK late in the night. Well, here's Rostenkowski talking about it at a Richard J. Daley forum at UIC a few years ago with former Senator Adlai Stevenson and former Vice President Walter Mondale. The election was practically over. It was around 5 o'clock in the morning. And we were at the Morrison Hotel, and uh, the mayor was, it was in his little office. Uh, and he'd come out every once in a while, and I was then a kind of a plebiscite. You know, I, he'd come out and he said, we're going to win this thing. And it just didn't look like we were going to win it. Daly 
had already closed, we in Cook County closed all of our precinct polling places. The county, Cook, which was a Republican element in the fight, closed their polling places. Daly looked at the numbers, and the only way that Jack Kennedy could lose this election was if Dick Nixon carried by a larger majority than he was carrying downstate. When Daly looked at all these figures, he says, we're going to win this thing. Nixon can't, can't come up with enough votes. Now, that's exactly what happened. This idea that we ran out there and stuffed ballot boxes, so god darn much baloney, that, because we knew that we could win this. And Daly wanted to beat DeSales out of Ohio so bad because Jack Kennedy was, oh, you know, Ohio's going to be with me. Well, Illinois was with Jack Kennedy and Ohio went down the drain. Well, and let's follow, let me follow up on but, that. But, but, but the, the, the idea that we went into the hinterlands and, and stuff is, is so much bunk because Daly knew what Dick Nixon had to carry downstate in order to win the election. The, uh, yeah. This is one of the myths of Illinois uh, uh, politics. Cook County uh, polling places are and have been for many years closely monitored. We saw in the tied gubernatorial election of 1982 where the real irregularities are. They're in the suburbs and they're downstate where we don't even have any election ju judges. Now, in 1960, if there had been any doubt about the outcome in Illinois, Richard Nixon could have asked for a recount. He did not ask for a recount. He said, oh, I'm going to be virtuous and sacrificial. Well, if you can believe Nixon being virtuous and sacrificial, you must, you know, believe in the tooth fairy. If they'd uh, demanded a recount, they would have lost the state by a larger margin. Uh, this, this point about, That's why they didn't ask for it. But Illinois did deliver, and uh, some of these folks sitting in the front row were among the first guests at the White House, the Daley family, uh, after the president uh, was sworn in. And it wasn't just, I suspect, an appreciation for what Daley had done, but also for what he, and out of friendship, which undoubtedly was there, but also for what he could do. And we have a little bit of tape from one of the phone conversations that, was, that the vice president mentioned earlier uh, between uh, JFK and... Uh, and Mayor Daley on a, when the president was in a tough position on a key issue. I guess I should give you that more. Right together and yeah. rolling with the naughty is sticking it right up us. Yeah, because he's standing with the extreme liberals who are going to end up with no bill at all. And I asked him, if you vote for this package? He said, no. He'll vote for it. He'll vote for any guy that you want. Well, can you get him? I surely can't. I told him, now look at I don't give a guy wanted to do for anything the president wants, and this is the way it will be, and this is the way we want it, that's the way it's going to be. Okay, good. Fine, <laughs> Mr. Mr. Vice President, do you, when you have conversations like that, having lived through an administration that had some issues uh, in trying to get its will, uh, are you jealous? Uh, yeah, I am. <laughs> 
I'm jealous and I'm struck by the difference in the language that is used, but I'm also very impressed. Uh, I served in the Congress for many years, and one of the remarkable things about the Chicago delegation was, unlike any other delegation of many other cities, there was remarkable harmony in view on almost every crucial issue. They love me. Yeah, they love Danny Rosenkowski. Now, we should just, just to close, circle the story. What, Roland Libanati was a, uh, was a congressman from Chicago. What, what, did, what happened on this bill? Do you have any recollection? Well, I, I think the change in the vote was in the Judiciary Committee. Right. And I was reading Bobby Kennedy uh, that was talking to his brother. Uh, I don't know whether that bill ever passed, but the fact of the matter is, uh, what Roland Libanati was doing was was kind of, in our time, we'd be looking at the Patriot Act. We'd be looking at what does the defense lawyer try to protect the citizen from with respect to the encroachment on the part of the Constitution. And uh, I came back to Chicago on a Friday and talking to the mayor, and I said, you know, Dick, uh, they're going to take Libanati. I mean, Libanati's not going to be a candidate for re-election. I said, you know, he's not a bad congressman. I mean, as a matter of fact, he does a lot of good work. And the mayor looked at me and he says, Danny, mind your own business. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir, Mr. Mayor. How, 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 just as, just, just as, as how, how much of a, how many votes could uh, the Chicago delegation provide to a president on some of these uh, pieces of legislation? Well, we had, we had 20, we had 20 uh, seats then, and uh, 12 of them were Democrats. So, uh, you know, the, the, it was a good contingent, but. And could, and could, could, would you go on mass uh, if. Yeah, uh, we, we pretty much followed the, the dictates of the Democratic Party. I mean, the, the, what the leadership put together and what we found from the administration uh, was always uh, we, we supported. And that was it was the only time that I think uh, that uh, the mayor had interjected himself with respect to an individual. And that was because he got a call from Jack Kennedy. Well, let me uh, play. Uh, one of the, the point yeah, is that they also all got the best committee appointment. Isn't that nice? Yeah. <laughs> The moderator there was David Axelrod, then a political consultant. Also at this forum, Rust and Kosky told the story of how the first mayor daily, Richard J. Daly, privately counseled LBJ to get out of Vietnam. Well, we were in the Oval Office, and uh, the, the president had a contour map showing Vietnam and where the hills were and the valleys. And uh, we were all sitting, standing over the map, and the president was trying to convince mayor about, you know, why we're there, why we're there. And uh, the mayor did have a, a genuine respect for the executive that had all the information feeding into him. Because the mayor said to me on several occasions, you know, one or two aldermen aren't going to make up the policy of the council because they haven't got an idea of what the whole city needs. And so therefore it's an agenda that the chief executive has to, has to submit. And that was what Daly felt. Daly felt that the war in Vietnam uh, was was wasting our time, using our youth. Uh, and he said on three occasions that I was in there talking with him, he said, Mr. President, get out of Vietnam. Uh, 
Now, he said it three times in that meeting, but every time Dick Daly came to Washington, and I was in his presence, he was saying, Lyndon, I'm telling you, get out of Vietnam. So much so that Pat Nugent, who was in Vietnam, was put on the phone with the mayor. And the mayor talked to him, oh yeah, you know, God bless you, and got through with that conversation, Mr. President, get out of Vietnam. Well, we had another discussion about cities and, and the, 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 the health bill, and we walked outside into where all the microphones of the, of the press are, and the battery of press out there, and he said, uh, you know, the question started, what did you talk about? Oh, we talked about the problems in cities, and uh, I'm down here to, you know, make a request for funding for this, and I was here, so I wanted to visit with the president. Did you talk about Vietnam? He said, uh, I'm with the president of Vietnam. Now, here's a man that respected the office, but Daly respected the presidency. When Dick Nixon came to this town and he was in the bowels of, of, of commitment with respect to the impeachment, Daly was out there because he was the president of the United States. When Jerry Ford talked about New York, and adios, New York. I called Daly gleefully, suggesting, oh, Mr. Mayor, we're going to give it to New York. No, you aren't. Danny, you can't let a city go under. Because if New York can go under, so can Chicago and so can St. Louis. Daly had a, 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 a kindled respect for the chief executive and... Uh, stood with the chief executive even when uh, it would have been a hell of a lot more popular for him to say, yeah, I told the president to get out of Vietnam. He just didn't do it. Loyalty was such a big part of the Daily Machine and the Rostenkowski career that they all supported George McGovern for president in 1972, even after the McGovern forces kicked Daly and his delegates, including Rostenkowski, right out of the Democratic Convention. Well, there you have some of the classic stories from Danny Rostenkowski. Dan Rostenkowski, who died this week back in 2010. After a break, our Connected to Chicago Roundtable with Lynn Sweet, Ray Long, Greg Hines, and Heather Sharon. This is Connected to Chicago with Bill Cameron. A look at the top stories of the week with the people making, covering, and talking about the news of the day. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com. Now, Bill Cameron. Time for the roundtable where we just get to tell the truth with Lynn Sweet of the Sun Times. Hey, Lynn. Hello. Ray Long at the Tribune. Hey, Ray. Hi, Bill. Greg Hines of Cranes. Hey, Greg. Sir. And Heather Sharon of WTTW. Hey, Heather. Hey, Bill. Well, we got to talk about the mayor of Chicago getting shunned, cops turning their back on her, literally. At the gathering after the murder of the Chicago police officer, <clears throat> Ella French. Heather, have you ever seen anything like this before? No, and I think that it is a 
clear that the the death of Officer Ella French has really widened an already existing and significant breach between the mayor and the police department, which has put her in a very difficult political situation because uh, she is at one time at one hand on one hand trying to reform the police department, make good on campaign promises to reverse decades of mistreatment by from officers for black and Latino Chicagoans, while at the same time trying to improve very low morale in the department. And she is just getting it from all sides. And, and really nothing that happened in the wake of Officer French's death has, has really helped um, helped either thing, either effort. Greg, how did you regard the shunning of Lori Lightfoot? Well, it's partially her fault and it's partially not her fault, Bill. Um, first, let me put a little bit of context. Uh, no, no mayor of Chicago in my memory, possibly excepting Richard J. Daly, which is really going back, has really been popular among the police. The, the, the police union is always uh, has built of a, a very hostile uh, uh, operational style, and they tend to get in mayor's faces. And uh, there's been a lot of jealousy. I mean, look at Rahm for crying out loud. He wasn't exactly uh, the hero of the guys in gals in blue. Um, in, in Lightfoot's case, as Heather correctly says, uh, she not only promised during her campaign, but smart governance says that after the George Floyd episodes, that you have to reform this department. That's not going to be popular in some quarters. Um, but it doesn't help that uh, uh, that she endorsed a state's attorney who has done things like, along with the judges, release a lot of, uh, of, of people, including some alleged murderers, on cash bail, some of whom have gotten into other trouble that's tremendously unpopular with, with uh, police, including the mayor's own police superintendent, who's repeatedly taken shots at, at, at the state's attorney and the judge for doing that. But she, but she's made some personal mistakes, though. The one that kind of sticks in my mind uh, is, is uh, remember when the, after, in the middle of the George Floyd stuff, there was a, a protest to take down the, the Columbus statue in, in, the, par, in the park downtown. Um, and uh, there were huge riots, and the mayor said, no, it's not going to go, and she sent the police out there. And they literally stood there and had people throw stuff at them and uh, yell at them and scream at them and beat them up in some cases, and they defended the statue. And then a day later, the mayor quietly ordered the thing removed in the middle of the night. Uh, well, how would you feel if you were one of the police that, that you did this? You'd, you'd feel like the mayor didn't have your back, and that's that's kind of the core problem. That's what she has to deal with right now. What do you think, Ray? Is it long-term smart to shun a mayor? Well, that's a good question. I think that the rank and file who did it will probably not suffer any consequences. But I think that it is illustrative of the tensions that are growing with the police here and Lori Lightfoot. And, you know, I, there have been complaints since the riots last summer that uh, there wasn't anybody really with a, a strong plan. Uh, it's been a, a criticism that the uh, police aren't doing enough here, and I think that she has uh, tried to walk a tightrope here between uh, the police that she needs to have on her side and the constituents who she also needs to have on her side, and it's a tough balancing act. Lynn, what's your take on a mayor getting shunned like this? I don't think, uh, I think it represents a kind of a snap focus group. 
I don't think anyone, uh, from what I read about it, it doesn't seem like this was a tactical decision or a strategic move that was debated. And I, I, I guess you take it for what it is that these officers uh, realized it was uh, a low-risk event. No one was probably going to retaliate against them for what they did. And they got the word out that they did what they did, which certainly puts the mayor in a bad light. Hey, Ray, bring us up to date on the Madigan story with the ICC, Illinois Commerce Commission, beginning to investigate ComEd. What's this all about? Yeah, it was an interesting thing that just popped up uh, yesterday in Springfield. The staff of the ICC has been uh, looking at whether or not ratepayers got uh, whacked uh, for paying some of the uh, costs of the uh, scandal at ComEd. Now, did they pay, uh, did ratepayers help pay for some of the people that allegedly were brought on because Madigan uh, pals needed to be taken care of? Or uh, did they ratepayers have to pay some of the $200 million fine that uh, the uh, ComEd had to pay because of the uh, deferred prosecution agreement that they they uh, worked out with prosecutors last summer? Uh, the, uh, the ComEd folks say, no, it's all separate money, et cetera. And uh, the ICC staff has determined they want to take a deeper look at it. They propose that to the full commission. And, of course, the chairwoman of the commission uh, is the daughter-in-law of, uh, of former alderman Mike Zalewski, who has been subpoenaed in the ComEd federal investigation. And she didn't vote. But the other folks uh, voted three to nothing that, yes, we should uh, investigate this further and, and see if there has been fallout that impacted ratepayers. Uh, Ray, what do you think? Uh, rather, Greg, is this a big deal or merely some hanging threads that will get tied up? Uh, somewhere in between, Bill. Um, uh, I don't think anybody's going to be able to take a long vacation with uh, with the extra money they're going to get uh, from uh, from a refund if this goes through. Uh, we're talking reasonably small change in the in the big picture here, uh, but it's uh, you know it's an it's another way of making the point that ultimately if you're dealing with a crooked public utility and uh, allegedly crooked politicians, I guess who pays for it? We do. And, and Heather, what do you think of the nepotism of the chairman of the ICC, chairwoman, being married to a state rep who is the son of one of the figures being questioned in the scandal? Well, isn't uh, Illinois politics a, a small world sometimes? Uh, it's a family you know, business. It is. I, I think it raises significant questions about what are these elected officials doing? Are they looking out or the average ratepayer, or are they looking out for themselves and their clout and, you know, the next job down the line? And that has been a question at issue of Illinois politics probably going all the way back to the days of Abraham Lincoln. Um, so it's nothing new, but I think it is particularly germane at this point because, um, you know, this has been such a huge scandal. And, you know, in, I think, some ways, sort of the focus on Michael Madigan has really sort of obscured the fact that 
that the, the legislation at issue here raised electricity rates on every Illinois resident and could have had profound impacts on, on families' finances and their abilities to keep their home. So, uh, you know, uh, they say that, you know, there's, you know, it, it's politics as usual, but I, I think it, you know, behooves us to remember that, that it does have significant consequences. Nothing changes. Hey, the census mm. numbers are out, Lynn. What can you tell us preliminarily about the finding that so many downstate counties lost so much population? How is that going to affect the remap of the congressional districts? It means that the Democratic hand is strengthened. So when it comes to uh, lose one seat, which Illinois will have to do because of reapportionment, meaning Illinois compared to other states lost population, it, it means that you can't argue against uh, stick, sticking that loss on Republicans. So now that we have the data, you have to figure out uh, what Republicans are going to be thrown in with each other and how the Democrats will now draw a map to try and we'll have, we're going from 18 districts to 17. They will have an ability to try and improve Democratic standing in areas around Cook County. The the reality, though, is Illinois downstate is very Republican. And in order to create a downstate Democratic district, it's almost impossible. So to give a better district to, let's say, Lauren Underwood, who needs more Democratic turf, you're going to have to do readjustments and bring out the city-based districts to push everything out in order to help Lauren Underwood. And then the other change that we're going to be watching for is the seat now held by Sherry Bustos, uh, which is in the Rock Island area, how that will be uh, given more Democratic seats. The downstate district that is around East St. Louis now, where Democrats thought they had a chance it looks like that might be harder to make it more democratic, uh, but we know that this, to sum up, the Republicans have no bargaining position as a result of these census positions. Not that they had one anyway, because the Democrats will draw the map. Yeah. Uh, Greg, I see that the census figures suggest that the uh, population over the last decade in the city of Chicago has jumped up 1.9%, basically 2%. Uh, I know that uh, there's been a lot of increased development on the near west side, and the uh, Latino population is clearly up. As uh, Louis Gutierrez once told me, my people like to have babies. <laughs> Does that uh, explain it? Uh, it's uh, in, in, in general terms, Bill, uh, 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 Chicago added about 40,000 Latinos, about 40,000 uh, 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 Asians, and about 40,000 people of mixed race under the other category. Um, the white population was up a little bit, uh, not quite stable, up about 10,000. But the black population dropped again by about 80,000. That's a lot. And there's going to be real implications when uh, the city council tries to sit down and draw new ward maps because Latinos are, are already screaming pretty loudly, that, hey, we, do, we deserve more. Uh, you probably can't get it from uh, from white areas because the white population is up. It's going to have to come from African Americans, but they don't want to – the blacks don't want to give up. I don't blame them. Nobody wants to see political power. But uh, that could be, turn out to be a pretty messy fight uh, coming up with Lori Lightfoot right in the middle. 
Yeah. Heather, what do you think? Will the uh, Latino aldermen be able to get as many wards as they want? Well, that is the crucial question, and many Latino aldermen feel like they um, got they got less than they deserved in 20, 2010 under the last remat and are determined to not let that happen again in 2020. At the same time, they're facing a Black caucus, which is determined to hold on to their share of power on the city council, despite what looks to be about a 10 percent drop in the city's Black population over the last 10 years. So, um, you know, redistricting is a zero-sum game. Uh, somebody's going to win and somebody's going to lose. And I think it is going to be a, a true battle royale that will really shape the future of politics um, over, you know, the next decade. I, I will say that this is another situation where Mayor Lori Lightfoot is sort of between a rock and a hard place. Uh, during uh, the campaign, she vowed to create an independent commission to take the power of the remap away from aldermen so they don't get to pick their own voters anymore. Uh, she did not make that happen, and she has sort of come around uh, 180 degrees and saying that, you know, the city council is actually best equipped to make these decisions. So she will be under a significant amount of pressure if the map that aldermen come up with isn't fair and equitable. And of course, there's always the possibility of a, of a court challenge. So this is sort of the opening bell in what's going to be a, a, a brutal battle for, for political power at City Hall. Hey, uh, there's a big Me Too story this week, of course. Uh, Ray, we had uh, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo resigning, Cuomo, of all people, resigning for what he says he didn't do, but regrets and won't do it again. Uh, decode this one for me, Ray. You've done a lot of Me Too reporting here in Illinois. How did the Cuomo story strike you? Well, it, it strikes me that uh, Cuomo is obviously trained to strike a balance here between, uh, okay, I apologize and please don't think too badly of me. But the deal is that just saying I didn't do it is not always uh, the escape card that it used to be. And uh, I think that Cuomo uh, had so many other enemies that they were just waiting for him to teeter a little bit. And and this, especially a report that says that uh, 11 women had issues with his uh, behavior, uh, some of it quite, uh, quite, uh, uh, you know, uh, I guess you would say disgusting, and some, and some of it also is uh, uh, enough to rile up all of the the statewide officials, the state legislative officials, and even the president of the United States calling for the resign. I think he had to. Uh, probably read the numbers and um, decide that he couldn't win in an impeachment. So uh, he took the the step of uh, resigning before they threw him out. Greg, I thought that Cuomo, of all people, would fight on. Were you surprised? <clears throat> no. Um, uh, you know, I'm not quite sure what century Andrew Cuomo lives in, but uh, he certainly wasn't aware of how the world has changed. Um, if this had merely been a, been a uh, been a uh, a matter of uh, of him referring to women as sweetheart or dear or whatever, you know, and just verbal kinds of stuff, 
maybe, uh, but the, the reports that of physical contact, including some that is that in, it would be outrageous and unacceptable in any century, uh, I think it's what put him over the top. And the only thing that uh, then is uh, then then there was there's the on the top of that there was the uh, the appearance here the suggestion that the top eight of his were coercing potential uh, 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 witnesses, uh, telling women that if they complain they'd get in trouble, that there'd be uh, ramifications or whatever. Um, no, I'm not surprised this happened. Lynn, out in Washington, were they surprised that Cuomo quit? Well, I don't know. Uh, there was pressure, as you know, from uh, President Biden. There was pressure from the New York senators, Nancy Pelosi. But this really is a matter of what the New York legislature was going to do, more than whatever people may or may not have thought should happen in Washington. And if it looks, you know, everyone in politics knows how to count votes, and it looked like his impeachment was uh, going to go through. And so when you realize that there were probably the votes in the New York legislature to impeach him, then one would not be surprised that he stepped down. Yeah. Heather, how big a victory for the Me Too moment is Cuomo's resignation? Well, I think it's a significant victory because there are real. This is a real consequence. It's still an open question as to whether or not the New York Legislature goes forward and impeach, impeaches and convicts Cuomo. Um, but I got to say, as a Chicago political reporter, it felt a little weird to watch another state's governor be embroiled in a scandal and have to resign. And uh, he is, you know, the third New York governor in a row to have to resign. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, he, the, New York might be giving Illinois a, a run for its uh, corruption capital of the world money. We'll have to keep an eye on that. Huzzah! Let them have it. They can have the title. <laughs> well, you know, Washington Post, I think a, a writer out of the Washington Post did rank New York ahead of Illinois, but uh, the uh, governors in New York have stepped down. They haven't been convicted. Yeah. Uh, that's Ray Long of the Tribune, thanks to him. Also to Greg Hines of Cranes, Heather Sharon of WTTW, and Lynn Sweet of the Sun-Times. Thanks, everybody. This is Connected to Chicago. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com. I'm Maureen Cohn for Connected to Chicago. The National Alliance on Mental Illness is trying to move people with mental health issues away from jails and state-operated hospitals and into a system of care that can help them get on a path to stability. Joining me is the Chicago organization's COO, Jen McGowan-Tomke. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. What's wrong with the current system? The current system um, really creates a detanglement between the criminal court system as the safety net for mental health services. So it connects people with the criminal court system in this specific population just because of a mental health condition. And the, that connection in and of itself um, doesn't always help people strive to recovery, doesn't always help people connect with their health and the needed services um, that that may be helpful for them in their lives. So the intersection here and really the court system as a safety net is a challenge. And it's also a challenge that there are solutions for. So how will you change the system to make it better for those that are suffering? I think there are um, several short-term and long-term solutions that we can point to um, that we did in, in our recent report. But on a whole, the, the big picture, I think, is that 
people really need services in the community before they come into contact with the courts. And that's um, services like housing and um, community-based mental health services and other social support. And then in the case of people that are connected with the court system, we really need to focus on where the right setting is for support. And for many folks who are in the um, court system or the state hospital system now, they could be treated in the community um, different than they are uh, at this moment. And that would really um, shift both where people are getting services that are helpful for them and also um, reduce costs. So when you talk about then transferring it to being treated in the community, who pays for that? And, and what's specific when you say in the community? Is this a medical setting or is it a council setting? Well, I think what, what's important to remember is that um, what ends up happening is the court system becomes the default, the safety net, because um, community mental health services are stressed or limited because how access to housing is such a challenge because um, support services in the community uh, aren't always invested in. And so if we really could focus on that first point, folks would, uh, the, the level of hospitalizations or the need to ultimately get care within the court system because that's the only entry point, I think would diminish. Um, so this is a matter really of uh, partnership with our, with our local um, municipalities, with the county systems that run jails, and with the state system that runs our state hospitals. And when we talk about these people that are, you know, going into the court system, is it mostly adults or youth as well? The, the focus of um, our recent report was really around adults in the system, but we know that young people, um, those who are connected to the juvenile court system, 70% of them live with a mental health condition. So this is, an, a, a, this is something that we need to focus on early on as well and make sure supports are in place for young people at the time that they need them. Is this issue getting worse under the current climate with the pandemic and the different other problems that Chicago's facing? You know, I think that um, there's an exacerbation of this issue just because we've kind of lived in the system for a long time. And what we need is a different type of safety net, a safety net that folks can access that doesn't require entry, entry through the court system. Um, and that's something that really, I think, can be built with buy-in from policymakers across the board. And I think the, I think the, the good thing here, Lauren, is that there is an acknowledgement that the system can be different, can and should be different, um, and there are efforts around really shifting how the system looks right now. Jen McGowan, Tomke, thanks so much, and thanks so much for all your hard work in trying to improve the lives of many people who are suffering out there. We really appreciate your time, and I'm Lauren Cohn for Connected to Chicago. That's our show for this week. Thanks to Matt Mellon for production assistance. I'm Bill Cameron, WLS News. Connected to Chicago with Bill Cameron, a production of WLS News. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com.